Good morning. I'm glad all of you are here with us today. And uh, if you've been coming since we started this series, Barriers to Belief, I'm glad you're here as we're finishing this series this morning. And uh, I don't know, I guess Aisha didn't get the memo that it was white button down shirts today uh, if you're up on stage. But uh, yeah, Timothy and I did not plan to have white button down shirts together. But uh, it is what it is. But I'm glad you're here, Uh, and our plan this summer as we're finishing this series is uh, to start June 3rd, uh, a new series in the New Testament book of 1 John. We're calling this series Light and Love. I'm excited for us to jump into a book of the Bible uh, for the summer, uh, and we'll finish, as I said, this last sermon in Barriers to Belief, and our hope in Spending five weeks in the barriers has been to try and engage the big skeptical questions and barriers that many people have with Christianity and that we as Christians can wrestle with as well. I will say this has not been an easy series. Uh, Timothy and I are both like, let's get into some First John. <laughs> it's not been an easy series, but we thought it necessary for us to engage these questions. Because we want to be a church that doesn't shy away from difficult issues. We want to be a church that fosters honesty and welcomes people to come as you are. And this morning we're dealing with a very difficult barrier, as Timothy just alluded to. And it's this barrier. Why all the suffering? If there is a God, why is there so much suffering in our world? If you were here when we launched into the series, we showed a video. And in the video, there was a Duke student at the very end of the video, who referenced the Emmanuel Amy shooting of 2016. And uh, what he said was, if God is real, why would he allow people who are gathered in his house of worship to be killed? It's a long-asked question. How can suffering be reconciled with God the Father, with a God who loves and cares? So I'm going to read one of the darkest, probably the saddest psalm in all of our Bibles, Psalm 88. So I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as we read God's word to us this morning, a dark psalm. This is God's word to us. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My, com- my companions have become darkness. 
Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would come now and lead us in a very difficult reality of the suffering we face in our own lives, the suffering in this world. I do pray that you would meet us. I pray that the word would be illumined, that it would change our thoughts and hearts, that we would find great comfort in you, Jesus, being with us this morning in your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So when I was a campus minister at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, I did that for five years from 2008 to 2013, there was a debate at Memorial Hall, which is the premier performing arts center on campus. There was a debate between Dinesh D'Souza, a Christian apologist, and Bart Ehrman, the chair of the religious department who's not a Christian, considers himself an agnostic atheist. What he means by that is that you cannot know for sure that there is no God, but for him, he doesn't believe there is a God. And I've got to be honest, in this debate, Ehrman seemed to win the crowd over. He was, he's just a better debater, in my opinion. The question was posed, if God is who he says he is, why all the suffering in the world? Why all the suffering? And D'Souza tried to wax philosophical with his answer. And I think he missed everybody. And then Ehrman went on to say in a more compelling way how if he were a Christian, he might answer that question. But then he went into his own personal story of suffering and pain and loss. And with his personal story of pain, he hooked the crowd. Everyone felt his pain. And everyone was identifying with him, being reminded of their own pain and their own suffering. And here's the thing with this barrier, the question of why all the pain and suffering. It is deeply personal. Every single person, every single one of you, has experienced pain and suffering. And yes, there are philosophical arguments to engage in, and I will discuss some of those. But suffering has sunk its teeth into each and every one of our lives. Every single one of us has personally suffered. Listen to Haman, the author of Psalm 88, this choir master. He, he says, I cry out day and night before you. And it wasn't just one bad day for Haman. Verse 15 says he's been afflicted since his youth. He's isolated and lonely. Verse 8, he feels trapped, shut in so that he cannot escape. Verse 15, he's helpless. Verse 18, loved ones taken from him. And then he ends this dark psalm by saying, darkness is my closest friend. Darkness is my best companion. Suffering's deeply personal. Cannot imagine all the suffering that you've endured, but I know you have. And so I just need to say something from the beginning. There is no silver bullet answer to this question that's going to leave everybody in here satisfied. This is a long-discussed question in philosophy and religion, and again, I'm going to make mention of some of that discussion, but my primary point is not to philosophically convince you. I want to talk about a God who meets us in the midst of our suffering, because here's the truth again. Suffering and pain is a reality for every single person. Therefore, every single person, 
Every single one of us has to deal with it and face it according to a certain world view. And so the question I want you to consider, if you're here and you're searching out Christianity, is how does your worldview allow you to face suffering? And what I want to do is share with you how the Christian worldview addresses this. Here are the three points I'm going to make this morning. A Christian worldview gives you a personal voice of lament. Secondly, a Christian worldview gives you personal meaning. And lastly, a Christian worldview gives you personal resources. Let's look first that in the midst of suffering, a Christian worldview gives you a personal voice of lament. Psalm 88 was a song that was sung by the Israelites. I mean, it reads and it sings like a knife turning in our hearts. It's painful. Did you feel it when I read it? Constant wailing, crying out. There are no answers. Finishing the prayer still in the dark. Haman is the author of this psalm. He is a son of Korah. The sons of Korah were singers, composers, worship directors in God's temple. And the sons of Korah spent their life singing praises to God and leading Israel to sing praises to God. And Psalm 88 is right in the middle of our Bibles. Timothy preached three weeks ago that here at Christ Central, we believe God's word is God-breathed, God-inspired, which means Psalm 88 is God-inspired. The God of the Bible is behind these words. God gave it so that the church can sing it to him. Now imagine if our worship team goes off for a retreat for the weekend, and they come back and they go, hey, we wrote a song while we were gone. We're going to teach it to you this morning, Christ Central, and it's called Darkness, My Closest Friend. Everybody stand as we sing Darkness, My Closest Friend. I'm not sure we know what to do. Here's why I think in many regards our society and the church in America has lost its capacity to grieve and mourn, lost its capacity to lament. In many ways, little to great, we've bought into a health and prosperity gospel. We believe that, that if we believe in God, he's going to guarantee us health and prosperity. So we read Psalm 88, and we don't like it. We want to tear it out of our Bibles. But here's the thing. If we want to tear out Psalm 88, we've got to tear out over half the Psalms. Because over half the Psalms are Psalms of lament, wailing and crying out to God. Before there were songs like A Change is Going to Come by Sam Cooke or Respect by Aretha Franklin, songs thought by many to be some of the best protest songs of the 1960s protest and social activist movement, we had psalms of lament, which are protest songs, protest psalms against an incoherent world, a world filled with injustice and suffering, a crying out for change. Theologian Walter Brueggemann wrote, a church that always sings happy in the face of reality is doing something very different than what the Bible does. A biblical worldview does not speak of an unreal world full of sweet and precious moments, light and fluffy living. The pain of human experience is fully appreciated and explored in the Scriptures. Psalm 73, Asaph, is frustrated 
So he looks around and he sees the wicked prospering. In Genesis chapter 30, we see Rachel longing for a child. She's childless and she says, give me a child or I will die. 1 Kings 19, we see deep loneliness and lamentations. We see grief over war. New Testament, Jesus himself weeps tears over loss. We see suffering, ill health, rape, and the killing of innocent people. Christianity gives a personal voice to cry out and lament. It's not negative or a lack of faith for you to pray like Psalm 88. In fact, Christianity teaches that this is actually a real walk with God. That prayers like this are bold and full of living faith. We're not called to pretend in this life. We all know that suffering is real. So Christianity gives lament, protest songs in the face of suffering. It is okay for us to ask the question, God, why do you allow this suffering? There's two general responses that our society has in regards to suffering. The first is a moralist response. And maybe this is you this morning. This is the person who thinks that if you live a good life, good things will happen. And vice versa. If you live a bad life, bad things will happen. That suffering is punishment. And there's confusion when the person thinks that they're doing all the right things, but they're still suffering. The God of the Bible does not say this. And I want you to know this morning that if you are suffering, it isn't proof that God is punishing you. Second response that I think could be had is cynicism. This is, uh, uh, this may be you if you think suffering shows that the world is just random and meaningless. This is the predominant secular view today that God is un- incompetent or indifferent if he exists at all. It's an old argument stated by J.L. Mackey in 1982. Maybe you've heard this reference before. Here was Mackey's argument. Either God is all-powerful and not all-good because of suffering, or God is all-good but not all-powerful enough to do something about the suffering. Therefore, the Christian God does not exist. C.S. Lewis made the point when he was describing his personal conversion to Christianity that the fact of evil and suffering can actually be evidence for God. Lewis writes about how our cry for justice in the face of injustice is a cry of how things ought to be. We ought not to suffer. There ought not to be homelessness. There ought not to be violence and killings on Canal Street. And if there is no God, then everything's just blind chance then why do we get so upset at nature taking its course? Because death is natural and suffering is natural. But we all cry out at injustice because we know this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Suffering's appalling. But it's appalling only if you assume that which is denied, that there is a standard beyond nature, which is God. Some believe that suffering reveals the randomness of the world. It's just meaninglessness. And I actually think that might be one of the bigger questions today for us in our culture. More so than why suffering. I think in the face of suffering, we can ask, well, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of all this? What's the meaning of life? And this is my second point, that a Christian worldview gives personal meaning. 
personal meaning. Some today might say it's liberating to have no meaning. That meaning actually imposed on other people is a form of bondage, that we should be free to construct our own life. But think with me for a second. If you feel hurt and pain in your experience of loss, you lose something and and you feel hurt and pain in, in it, it reveals that you're holding on to something for meaning, whatever it might be. Something matters deeply to you. That could be meaning, you know, that you're finding in your family, meaning in your career, meaning through adventure, meaning through a political or social cause. And if one of these is your search for meaning, to have a meaningful life, life must go well. And if suffering comes, it disrupts one of these meanings. And it can leave a person vulnerable and asking What's the point? What's the point of all this? What's the meaning? A Christian's meaning, a Christian's purpose in this life is to know God, to please God, and to glorify God. And in the face of suffering, we're not undone. We're not undone. Suffering can actually enhance our meaning. Now, don't hear me saying that Christians find it noble to suffer. We shouldn't go looking for suffering. And I know I'm not answering completely the why of suffering, but a Christian worldview does give meaning to our suffering. Psalm 88 is a dark and depressing song, yet it's a biblical picture of life in communion with God. Just because we cannot see what God is doing in the midst of suffering doesn't mean God's not at work. Our God is a great God. He's so great, we can be mad at him. And we can question him and we can cry out against him. I had a seminary professor that used to say, if you haven't learned how to cuss at God and cuss with God, you aren't in a real relationship with him. He is great enough for us to be mad at. He's great enough to have reasons for our suffering that we may never understand. But we know there's meaning in it. He is at work drawing us to himself. He is at work making us more like himself. He's leading us into communion with himself and ultimately to glorify him. Not necessarily fixing our every single problem. Tim Keller references Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl writes about the death camps during World War II. How some survived the death camps. Some stood strong. They were kind to other people. Others gave up, even became collaborators within the death camps. And he asked what made people stand strong and be kind. And the answer he found was that it had to do with the person's search for meaning in life. That if people found their meaning in career, social status, or family, these meanings were based on things in this life, and the death camp swept them away completely. As a result, some collapse psychologically and spiritually, often giving up and dying. Some collapsed morally. They tried to survive using every means. While they're in the camps, they used brutal force upon others. They were thieves. They betrayed some of their best friends, all to save themselves. But those who did not crumble often had a kind of reference point that transcended the circumstances of this life. The prisoners that stood strong and were kind were those who went 
back and found depth in their religious belief. There's one woman who said, in my former life, I was spoiled. And now in the death camp, she said, I have found life and meaning beyond this world. See, those with meaning and dignity that transcends this material world suffer well in the midst of tragedy and death. As Christians, we can suffer well because we have a worldview that transcends the material world and leads us to find ultimate meaning in knowing and glorifying God. Here's my last point, that a Christian worldview gives personal resources. The Bible's not always clear about the cause of suffering, but it does help us respond to suffering. Timothy said last week that one of the big questions underlying all these barriers in a large part is, can we trust God? Can we trust him and apply that to what I'm talking about this morning? Can we trust and love a God who allows terrible things to happen? It's a big question. C.S. Lewis, who's one of the most for, foremost defenders of Christian faith, wrote a book called A Grief Observed. He wrote it after his wife died. Listen to what Lewis writes. He says, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. Go to God when need is desperate and find the door slammed in your face, bolted and double bolted, and after that, silence. C.S. Lewis being honest. I love it. I love that. I would rather give that to someone in suffering than the often Christian platitudes we try to serve people. Psalm 88 is naming the silence of God. At times it feels like God is silent. It gives us words in our suffering. But thankfully God speaks his word into our silence that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the answer to our tears. In our personal questioning of why me, God, God meets us in the person of Jesus. All worldviews must deal with suffering, but Christianity is the only worldview that says suffering is also a problem for God. And it was so great that he died for it. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took evil on himself. He went into complete darkness and was torn from his father's love. He hung on the cross for the sins of the world love what Peter Kreft said. He said, Jesus is not God off the hook with suffering, but Jesus is God on the hook. God in the flesh suffering for us. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, which means not only did he suffer for us, but he suffers with us. As you sit at the funeral of one of your parents, Jesus is with you. As you lie in bed feeling isolated and alone, Jesus is with you. As your body breaks down physically or you break down emotionally, Jesus is with you. As you're being tempted with an addiction, Jesus is with you. When you feel full of sorrow and grief, may you know that Jesus was a man full of sorrow and grieved at his own suffering for the sake of your suffering. When you feel betrayed, may you know Jesus was abandoned and betrayed by his closest friends. Psalm 139 tells us that even if we descend into Sheol, into hell, 
utter darkness, he's with us. God is with us. Now, this isn't the only consolation, but it's a major consolation. It is a major resource for us in suffering. We also have great hope. We have a great hope for what will be. The final resurrection, the Bible talks about, God's kingdom, referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. As human beings, we will not be taken from this world floating up into heaven, but Revelation 21 tells us that heaven will come down to earth, and there will be a cleansing, a renewing, and a perfecting of this material world. A secular worldview wonders, what's the point? There's no future restoration, but for the Christian, there is a resurrection. And it's not just a consolation for the life we've never had, but it's a restoration of the life we've always been intended to live perfect communion with our God, with one another in his kingdom. God will redeem. If you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is, she's a speaker. She's quadriplegic, paralyzed from diving into a pool at a young age. Uh, I love a lot of what she says because she has suffered deeply. Uh, But listen to what Johnny says. This is fairly long, but I want you to hear her. She writes, it's hard to think about heaven when it seems so far away. Besides, we've got to die in order to go there, and who wants to think about that? So God gives us a little help in getting our minds on the hereafter. That's just what what God did for me when he sent a broken neck my way. The dark despair which followed wasn't much fun, but it sure did make what the Bible says about heaven come alive. And there's no doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I were on my feet. You see, suffering gets us ready for heaven. How? It makes us want to go there. Broken necks, broken arms, broken homes, broken hearts. These things crush our illusions that earth can keep its promises. When we come to know the hopes we cherished will never come true, it lifts our sights. It moves our eyes from this world, which God knows could never satisfy us anyway, and sets them on the life to come. Heaven becomes our passion. But suffering does more than just make us want to go to heaven. It prepares us to meet God when we get there. Just think for a moment. Suppose you had never in your life known any physical pain. How could you at all appreciate the scarred hands with which Christ will greet you? What if no one had ever hurt you deeply? How could you adequately express your gratefulness when you approach the throne of the man of sorrows? If you had never been embarrassed, if you had never felt ashamed, you could never begin to know just how much he loved you when he took your shameful sins and made them his. Don't you see when we meet him face to face that our suffering will have given us at least a tiny taste of what he went through to purchase our redemptions? We will appreciate him so much more, and our loyalty in those sufferings will give us something to offer him in return. Suffering prepares us to meet God. I know there is a lot of suffering in your life and in this congregation, but there is no darkness too deep where God's love and God's presence isn't deeper. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Meet us where we are. God, I pray that we could be honest about 
the brokenness of this world, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We wouldn't walk around with Christian platitudes and surface talk, but that we could really cry out and lament, protest against the brokenness. Thank you that even in the midst of suffering, there's deep meaning because we can know you and even have opportunity to glorify you. And Lord, we are so thankful that you are with us. That in the darkness and the pit and the despair and the loneliness and death and tragedy, you are with us. And thank you that one day you're not just going to undo what is wrong, but you're going to restore the way the world was always intended to be. Give us hope today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.